Let's begin together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And for our opening prayer, I'd like to pray the Te Deum. I will speak the regular text. You can speak the text that's in italics with me, okay? You are God, we praise you. You are the Lord, we acclaim you. You are the eternal Father, all creation worships you. To you, all angels, all the powers of heaven, cherubim and seraphim sing in endless praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded, your true and only Son, worthy of all worship, and the Holy Spirit, advocate and guide. You, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, you did not spurn the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come to be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people, bought with the price of your own blood. And bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. Save your people, Lord, and bless your inheritance. Govern and uphold them now and always. Day by day we bless you. We praise your name Keep us today, Lord, from all sin. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. Lord, show us your love and mercy. For we put our trust in you. In you, Lord, is our hope, and we shall never hope in vain. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, it is a real delight to see all of you. Um, a great gift that we can be together today, even if we still have to be at arm's length for the time being. Um, but after several months of separation and not seeing you in the church, uh, it's been a difficult three months for many of us, probably all of us in various ways. And uh, it is a testimony to your faith and to God's call to you that you are here today. And I want to thank God for calling each of you to associate with our monastery, either as oblates or oblate novices or spouses of oblates. And I also want to take a moment to thank God for the oblates who can't be with us today. Some of them uh, would like to be with us, but are still vulnerable um, and so are not participating yet in the sacraments. And so let us be sure to remember them in our daily prayers and ask God to provide his loving and healing presence. My theme today is praise of God. That's why we use the Te Deum. The Te Deum we say on every Sunday uh, outside of Lent and on every feast day and solemnity at the office of vigils in the morning. And it also can be used uh, just as a uh, hymn of thanksgiving to God at any time. Many years ago, I was visiting the community of St. Scholastica in Petersham, Massachusetts. Can you all hear me okay, by the way? Okay, if you can't, just wave. I have a pretty loud voice when I need it, um, but uh, 
when I was visiting this community, they had just put two communities together, the sisters from St. Scholastica in Massachusetts, and then the sisters from Tickfaw Abbey in Louisiana. They were two very different communities, and it's a long story how they came together, but they put the two communities together. I happened to be there for the one-year anniversary of the two communities coming together, and so they sang a Te Deum, and, um, you know, as an outsider, I saw them putting a good face on everything, but you can imagine how difficult it is to take two completely separate communities and put them together. They did an amazing job, but I think that's one of the things we do. Even when things are difficult, we praise God, and that helps us to get through the difficulties. I'm going to explain that today. When the stay-at-home orders were first issued, um, many people were asking, uh, what should we do? And my sense, it may have been incorrect, uh, I don't know, but my sense was that uh, secular leaders as well as church leaders It wasn't that easy to find um, real quick, easy guidance, so I started to write some things on the blog and so on. And it seemed like an opportune time for me to say something because this was a time for many of us of forced inactivity, right? And um, a lot of the work that brings meaning to life we had to withdraw from. Uh, We, a lot of other things that give meaning to life were taken away. We couldn't visit our friends, our families. We couldn't go to social events. Um, You know, as somebody who grew up in Wisconsin, it was really exciting. The Milwaukee Bucks were the best team in the NBA, and then the season's over. (laughs) Uh, We've been waiting since uh, they traded Kareem Abdul-Jabbar away 50 years ago for another championship, and oh well. Um, But I felt at the time that we, as monks, had something to offer because we voluntarily withdraw from the world. We withdraw from contacts with friends and family, uh, from things that often give us meaning so we can focus on our relationship with God. And what we experience in that withdrawal is oftentimes uh, various kinds of temptations, thoughts that are racing that we normally don't notice because we're watching basketball or whatever. Uh, mourning that comes from solitude and, and uh, distance from our families. Um, a lack of uh, just familiarity with the situations that we find ourselves in. So I wanted to say some things about how we can work on our thoughts, how we can work on virtue, especially courage, uh, when things are a bit scary and so on. Now, in the last three weeks or so, um, so a couple things happened. One is that when I started, I, I was expecting that this would be about a two-month ordeal, and then we start to get back to normal. It's been over three months now, and it's going to be a while before we get back to normal, whatever that ends up looking like. And, of course, as we all know, our political situation has gotten very tense. And uh, once again, when these things happen, when there is uh, a disruption in our life, One of the first things I think, especially we as Americans say is, what should we do, right? There must be something we can do to fix the situation. And uh, sometimes there's not anything we can do in the sense of activism, like going out and fixing something. And what we need to do is work, first of all, on ourselves, right? Uh, But what should we be doing right now? And the answer that I've come up to share with, uh, with, to share with you today 
is both similar and dissimilar to my original set of ideas uh, three months ago. So, first of all, I would say that the activity that is enjoined upon us as monks, and I think this would be true for you as oblates as well to a large extent, is always going to be something oblique to what, say, political or, uh, again, an activist mindset would think of. So when there's a problem in life, we think, well, let's get out there and volunteer and do something. And that's fine. I don't discourage that in any way, especially if you feel called to it. But as monks, we're not going to do that. So I was actually invited by a local pastor to participate in uh, what was originally going to be a, a kind of protest march uh, against racism and so on. And the, the pastor who invited me, he knows the community well, and so he knew we probably couldn't participate. Um, and uh, we, we ended up having a good talk about it. And I think as monks, we offered a perspective that was different from his that I think was helpful to the situation that kept it from being something that added tension rather than actually alleviates uh, some of the problems that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, so there is some usefulness actually to like, not doing anything and thinking first. <laughs> Sometimes that can help. But it's an oblique kind of activity because it's an activity that people won't see because it's largely interior. It's largely getting my own feelings and thoughts in order so that uh, I'm not contributing to the panic, but I'm actually a voice of calm and reason, voice of charity, voice of patience. And again, this doesn't mean that uh, getting involved in a protest is wrong or something like that. I'm not actually making any comment on any of that. Uh, so again, when the pandemic shut everything down, uh, one of the things I noticed again was that many celebrities, let's say, were saying things like, ah, this is a perfect time to take up a new hobby, to learn to cook some new dishes, to read those books you've been meaning to read. And, you know, again, uh, if you can do that, great. You know, if that's, if that's your life, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But as counsel for other people uh, who might be suddenly finding themselves without an income, separated from family, separated from everybody. I mean, I know some of you live by yourselves and you have no contact with people. That is psychologically very challenging. It's very challenging. This is why the Carthusians have very few vocations because you spend most of your time alone. And most people can't do it. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, so it's not as easy as just saying like, ah, this is my perfect time to, uh, you know, learn uh, embroidery or something. Um, and if you can do it again, that's fine. But to me, that response was both activist and kind of privileged. You know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to take that time as time off. Um, so most of us weren't in that position. Uh, so what I counseled again was working on dealing with our anxieties, learning how to distance ourselves from our feelings, how to pay attention to our thoughts, how to work on virtuous action and so on. Um, and then letting our silence, that enforced silence, that we, you know, we aren't talking to so many people, to give us an opportunity to train our attention on what's going on interiorly in our hearts and our minds. And then in a, that the exterior expression of what's going on in our minds and hearts, which we hope will be virtue, right? Which would be a life that's in accord with what God intends for us. And as I said, I was expecting the quarantine to be finished sooner than it was. 
And so now I think I need to offer a slightly different message or at least fill out the message I was saying before. And what I think we need to do is step back a little further even, okay? And what I mean by that uh, is that we should look at, we should focus our attention on the ground springs of our faith. Uh, so, again, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on us to do something right now. What should I do? There's all this, we're afraid to speak out because we might get in trouble. And, uh, but we, we, we also wanna be careful not to say things we don't really believe or feel like we're just saying things because somebody told us to say them. We're wondering, well, how, what, where should my heart be in all of this, right? And, you know, if you have special experiences or expertise, it might be valuable to get involved in political action. If you don't, um, then there might be other possibilities. And again, we should focus on what God is saying to us in all of this. So what I'm going to propose to you today is that our first action under any circumstances is to praise God, okay? And it's especially important to remember this when things are hard because that's we don't usually feel like praising God in those circumstances. And I'm going to offer Job as, uh, as an example for this. And to get a running start at this, I want to step back in another way and urge you to reflect for a moment on God's call to you in your own personal conversion of life. So the fact that you're all here means that God called you to pursue a closer relationship with him through our monastic community, right? So at some point, God spoke to you and said, I want you to be an oblate, okay? And, or, or something related, because I know not all of you here are actually oblates at this point. How did God call to you? Um, I'm going to cover that in a minute. What I want to say is that this is something Pope Francis has often urged us to do, to think about that time when God spoke to your heart in some way. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying this any, in a sentimental way, like, oh yeah, I remember when God called me. And so even though I'm afraid now, I'm going to cover that over with good feelings and memories. I'm actually thinking of something more practical, just to call to mind that this actually happened. And that this is the basis of a lot of what I'm doing right now, is that God has called me. And so I've already got that relationship and I can call upon it at any time. Uh, so Paul writes to the Corinthians, consider your call, brethren. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is your source of life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. So here you see in one space, I cut out a few parts in, in the middle there. Paul writes long sentences, as you probably know. But here we have the connection between our call and our desire to praise God. So the call is an indication that we uh, have this relationship with God and he merits our praise. So our reflection on our call should lead us to magnify the Lord, to praise him. And this is more than a matter of just changing how we feel. Again, I really want this to be an objective thing. 
that we say that God merits our praise. That's just a real thing. He merits our praise because he created everything, because he redeemed us, because he, he makes the sun to shine on us, even if we're not doing so well. Um, I just wrote this in my thank you letter. Uh, you know, our chard is coming up, our beans are coming up, our raspberries are blossoming. Uh, the cats, well, you can see a couple of the cats back there. The old cats aren't too afraid of you. They'll, they'll hang out here. The younger cats are a little skittish. Uh, and, you know, they go about their cat world. It's like this whole world that we don't know anything about. We just kind of intersect with here and there. And somehow God has taken care of all that, you know. Cats go on. They don't pay attention to, uh, you know, whether the economy is faltering or whatever. Um, and it's just a reminder that behind all of the things we see, there is God's quiet presence just continuing on, managing everything. Somehow life keeps going. It keeps springing up. And uh, this is a reminder. We, you know, we could, we all know it's possible for us as human beings to destroy all life on the planet. But God is completely greater than that. You know, he, and so just to say that over and over again, God is the creator of life. He's the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. What a beautiful thing and what a great thing that he made me. What a great thing that he made my family, all the people that he made. And that, you know, one day, all of the sufferings that we're going through will be done and we'll live in perfect peace with God and with one another. Thank you, God, for that promise. So this alters our entire perception of the world when we start praising God because we start focusing on things that we might miss. Part of the problem with anxiety is it gets us focused on all the things that are worrying us, right? And it's hard to break away from that because it starts to get into our bodies, right? These thoughts start to inform how we feel and we become uh, what psychologists might call chronically anxious. And just everything we do then, we do out of anxiety. So to undo this, we need to keep working on changing our thoughts. And one of the dangers I find, and one of the reasons I'm changing my message here, is that one of the things we can think is like, okay, I've got to try harder to not feel anxious. <laughs> um, this is like, uh, uh, you know, try, trying harder. Um, well, I, I can't think of a good example of this, but we all know that when a thought is bothering us, if we go directly at the thought and wrestle with it, we'll probably lose. On the other hand, if we switch focus and focus on God and on what God is accomplishing, uh, we stop looking at these other thoughts. Now, as I say, the difficulty is our bodies continue to carry around that anxiety. And so it takes deliberate effort to keep focusing on God. And this is why we pray the office. This is why we go to mass. This is why we do, this is why we pray. But the key thing in this is, is to praise God. Uh, I, was, this got, I got started thinking on this reading the rule of St. Benedict, and he talks about, you know, seven times a day I praise you. And uh, so this is why we monks pray the office seven times a day. And um, it's very easy to have other motives for what we're doing during the office. Uh, just, you know, stay out of trouble with the community, take a break from work. Uh, but the psalmist says we're praising God at each of these times. Now, this change of perception where we go from sort of limited human focus 
to a focus that is informed by grace, where God is the focus and God, God's presence, his, his presence in all things and his goodness, his truth, his beauty, that becomes the focus. This is what we call conversion. Right? So we go from a fleshly human perspective to a spiritual perspective, a sacred perspective, a supernatural perspective. And when this change begins to take hold of us, then we, we start gradually to have an inner conviction that the things that used to make me anxious aren't so important. What's important is this. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or the sword? No. In all of these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, not powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. Right? Now, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to have that as our innermost conviction. But we can achieve that if we continue to focus on God, remind ourselves he's here, he's present, he loves us. And how wonderful it would be if that were our innermost conviction all the time. But it is a possibility. Uh, it's held out to us in the liturgy. And this is why it's so good that we could be together again, even if our, our Eucharistic liturgy was weird. <laughs> um, you know, we'll, we'll get better at it in the quarantine uh, era here. But eventually we'll, we'll get back to our full Eucharist. Eucharist means Thanksgiving, right? So... So at, at the heart of what we're doing together is thanking God. And we should remember that Christ at the Last Supper gave thanks to his Father. So we in Christ are giving thanks to the Father and giving ourselves through Christ to the Father, making a gift of ourselves. And it urges us then daily to praise God and teaches us why we should praise him. We're gonna talk at the end today, if I leave myself enough time, about the, the Lord's Psalms. Laws meaning praise. Okay, I don't have the big clock behind you all that I can look at today. Now, sometimes it's precisely a crisis that commits us to this pathway of faith. Now, the book of Job, as I said, is the classic example. So Job was a great guy even before all the calamities happened. There was nothing particularly wrong with what he was doing. And in fact, God praised him to Satan himself, right? Um, what changed between Job before his calamities and after? Well, obviously he had a different set of kids. That's, that's one thing that changed. Um, but there's something more subtle. So if we go to the first couple of chapters of Job, we see that, that God, uh, Job served God by following all of his rules, by offering sacrifice properly, making sure his kids didn't get in trouble. Um, he took care to maintain the purity of his life. He was really blameless. There were, he did, wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, whether or not he had a personal relationship with God, maybe, but it was kind of at the level of a, of a kind of transaction, let's say. God blesses Job. Job offers sacrifice to God. So it's good. It's fair. It's just. Nothing wrong with it, but maybe it's not perfect. And I wouldn't fault Job for this. So uh, 
While Job didn't openly criticize God when all of his wealth and his children were taken away and he was afflicted with sores and everything else went wrong, um, he was clearly kind of bitter about it. He wasn't happy. Um, uh, there's this wonderful line. He, he, uh, the, the narrator tells us, in all of this, Job didn't sin with his lips. And as uh, one of my teachers in the seminary said, he may have been sinning all over the place in his heart, but he wasn't going to say anything, right? And there's something to this, you know, that, that Job was obviously hurt badly by this. And it got worse when his friends came because they basically said, yeah, um, so you were doing everything right. You must have made a mistake. You must have offered sacrifice wrong. You did something wrong. And God, you know, obviously all you need to do is apologize for what you did wrong and, and so on. And Job, he won't go for that, <laughs> right? And um, when eventually, uh, so, so his friends were reinforcing the idea that what we need to do to serve God is follow his rules and so on. And um, they're, they're giving sort of the typical Old Testament view of how these things work. But eventually Job challenges God. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. Why did you let this happen, right? So there's, there's a new, new uh, kind of tone in this relationship. <laughs> and I would say, I think we all know in relationships, at some point there comes a point where we've got to, got to kind of have it out a little bit to get to clear the air, to make sure we understand what we're saying and get real clear on what we want the other person to hear. Um, and so some arguing is not necessarily a problem. I found this very refreshing when I studied Hebrew. Um, uh, the Jews in the class were very comfortable with the idea that you could take issue with God and argue with God. And that in, in some of the uh, rabbinical commentaries, the, the rabbis actually, like, challenge God and win <laughs> you know they actually outsmart God and so on so this isn't exactly our theology but there's something about it that's very honest we just uh, say what we think we trust that God um, wants to hear that in some place and here's the thing when God responds to Job there's several interesting things about this um, he doesn't justify anything he did he doesn't even respond to Job's charge he doesn't defend himself um, what he does is he points to creation. And he spends two chapters talking about, um, you know, Job, if you're so smart, can you create the universe, basically, is his argument. <laughs> so what do you know about running the universe, right? Um, and when I first read this book and wrestled with this before I even went to the seminary, you know, it felt a little bit like God was pulling rank, and I was uncomfortable with it, to be honest with you. Now, whether or not this is what God is actually doing, what we should look at is what the effect is on Job and their relationship to each other. So when God gets done, um, Job twice retracts his charge. He says, yeah, I spoke out of turn. Okay, that's it. I won't say anymore. Um, then God restores his fortunes and his family. And Job is a different man after this. Uh, what we see is that he is freer, he's more generous. He doesn't sort of keep accounts of like, okay, my children did this, this, and this. I have to offer this, this, and that sacrifice. He has a, a more, uh, um, well, I just say personal relationship with God. He is more at ease. He gives his daughters inheritances along with his sons. Um, 
he is at peace with himself in a way, and he's wiser, I think, is what we see. So when I was talking about thoughts and virtues back three months ago, two months ago, um, the circumstances were a little different. And I want to be clear today that what I'm urging you to do is not something where I'm placing more obligations on you, right? So you've been asked for a lot in the last three months, right? Your government has asked you for a lot. The church has asked you for a lot. God's asked you for a lot. And uh, I'm not here to ask you for more. Uh, I'm, I'm here to offer you this deeper perspective of who God is and how we can relate to him in the midst of our suffering, the difficulties. And part of the problem with the activist approach again is that, we, again, we have this nagging feeling that we're not doing enough. And it's, it's, it's exhausting because we're already being asked to do all kinds of things that are hard. <laughs> it's like, well, now we have to go out and protest on top of everything. Now I've got to commit myself to some social program of change and so on. And again, you may, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying before we feel that obligation, let's remember who we are. Let's remember who God is in all of this. Let's remember what our relationship really is with God and uh, make sure that it's God's energy that's informing what we do rather than our own so we don't burn out and become useless to everybody. Because it's hard not to do that when we're in high-stress situations. So again, the, the root of this is recognizing that God merits our praise and then praising him for it. Now, I, I want to say again that when God enters into his lawsuit, or when Job enters into his lawsuit with God, he says, yeah, I'm being treated unfairly. I want an answer. God, I, I, I will see you in court. <laughs> and um, again, God doesn't actually defend himself against the charge, but he does answer. He doesn't ignore him. And in fact, he even goes so far as to say that Job spoke rightly of him. And his friends didn't. So his friends who were trying to defend God, this is one of my um, uh, arguments with Milton uh, in Paradise Lost. He says he's going to sort of, you know, offer a justification of God's ways. God doesn't need your help, even if you're Milton. I mean, Milton's pretty great, but God doesn't need our defense, right? Um, what, what we need is to keep working on this conversion of our perspective. So... There's nothing wrong, again, with following God's law, and we should do it. But that's the end of the law is uh, union with God in Jesus Christ, and that is the beginning of our call. That is what we should go back to every day, that in baptism we have been united to the life of the Holy Trinity. We've been united to that life that is the source of all life, We've been united to that truth that makes sense of all of the world. Uh, and that we've been called, as, as Jesus says, to be God's friends, you know, not, not just his servants. Again, there's no problem serving God. I'm not saying that's bad. But perhaps in our struggles today, God is inviting us to make a deeper commitment to him and just abandon ourselves to him and praise him for his goodness. So again, uh, let me go back to this idea of a call. And again, the reason for saying this is to give us material to
to remind ourselves who we are and what God is doing in our lives. St. John Cashin isolates three types of calls in his conferences, and it's interesting, they parallel what Brother Gabriel was saying in his homily today. So the, the best type of call, the purest type of call, is when we just are overwhelmed with God's greatness and we want to give away everything and follow him. Right? Uh, and this happens, I think Antony the Great is the example of this. Goes to church one day, he hears Jesus saying, if you would be perfect, sell everything, give to the poor and follow me. He said, wow, I want to do that. That sounds great. The second uh, would be, so that would be the, the call that is like being a son or daughter of God, just wanting to be with God, very simply. The second one would be uh, seeing the life of the saints and saying, I want to do that. That's really beautiful. So St. Augustine, when he read Antony's life, he said, wow, I could do better than I'm doing. I, I have this incredible education, and uh, here this guy in uh, peasant Egypt is running circles around me. I want to do that. So the example of the saints. What a beautiful life. I want to be like Mother Teresa. I want to be like St. Francis. I want to be like St. Benedict. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, so there's an aspiration to virtue, an aspiration to uh, a great life. And this is something like the obedience of uh, the hireling. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's, there, it's, it's a step down from just doing it for pure love of God. So it's wanting to, be, wanting to do something great. Last type of call is an awareness of my own sin and a dissatisfaction with my own life. And a, and a fear that I may be wasting my life, saying, I, I, I need to turn my life around, okay? And this is, the, in a way, the toughest call to make work because you're coming from further back. But here's the thing. Cashin tells us about these three different types of call, not to compare them with each other, to say that we need to do something differently depending on how we're called. There is some of that, obviously. Uh, if we need to repent of sins... Uh, because we've lived a sinful life, that will be different than if we've lived a largely pure life and we simply now give everything to God. But the, the trajectory of all these is the same. The point of this, I think, that, that Cashin is trying to get to us is to remind us that God intervened in our life. He spoke to us and we heard him. Like, this is amazing that God can speak to us. And so when you were thinking about becoming an oblate or thinking about becoming a novice or when you came to the monastery and you thought, wow, I can't believe that there are still monks in the 21st century. Whatever it was, like at that moment, the eternal life of God broke into your heart, you know, he spoke to you. And uh, this is an objective thing that, that you can build a life on, right? And God continues to speak to us. And when we remember how that happens, we can learn to hear what God is saying, we can, we can draw analogies to that primal call, that first call. You know, maybe some of you were baptized as adults, or maybe some of you are converts to the Catholic Church, and you can look again, the Holy Spirit was moving your heart through that movement into the church, into full communion with the church. So these are times when we can, we can say, yeah, I remember that. God spoke to me, and he, surely he could speak to me again. This isn't something unusual. Uh, so this is the background. If God spoke to me out of his pure greatness, 
then of course I should praise him, right? Uh, if, if I just, um, you know, I, I had an experience when I was thinking of a religious life. I was uh, walking to visit a friend. Um, I was living in Hyde Park at the time, further south from here. And uh, this is something that would just happen to me from time to time in those days. I just, just, uh, I love, I love walking. You can ask any of the brothers. I could spend all day walking around. And one of the things I love about walking is just the, the world is so beautiful. And um, suddenly I was, I was just walking to visit this friend and I, I just saw a bunch of trees and I, I just started laughing because I thought, you know, it's, it's so mysterious that in, in, in this object here, there's all this life all this life coursing through these branches and breaking out in these leaves and then these leaves taking in the sun. It's so beautiful. And, uh, uh, and this is God like saying, isn't this beautiful? <laughs> like just in, in any living thing, there's this incredible beauty. Um, and thank you, God, for showing this to me. Um, I didn't put myself here and I didn't give myself this insight. This is somehow a mysterious movement of the, the life of all things moving in my heart in some way. So when we have this kind of call, if that was my particular call, I think, I think some of us are, we have a mixture of motives for following God. Obviously we should praise him because he is great. If it's because of the saints, we can praise him because of the saints, right? And I often think this too, when we read the lives of saints, um, I, I often look at uh, John Paul II and I think, what an incredible man. What incredible, what incredible ideas came from his devotion to God. Uh, so many saints. Uh, uh, I have uh, on my computer, I have a picture of uh, uh, St. Miguel Pro. And uh, he's, uh, he's just in his suit. And he's just standing there waiting to get shot. <laughs> and... Um, uh, I just, I, I, I look at him and I, I didn't know him, obviously. I think I know him now because he's a saint and so he's with us all the time. And I, I just, uh, I have to admit, I just, I love the man. I, I love what he did. I love his, his, the silent way he went about witnessing to God as an undercover priest and the, the kind of playfulness with which he went about hiding from the authorities before he got caught and executed. And, uh, and his final witness that he was just completely silent when they were taking him out, they, they gave him every opportunity to renounce his priesthood and uh, to uh, sound out other priests and the faithful so that they could be rounded up. And he just was quiet. And just before they shot him, as, as you know, you know, long live Christ the King. <laughs> Praise God. And then he's dead. And uh, uh, so just seeing him makes me want to praise God because I think what a beautiful life. You know, what a beautiful witness. And uh, I think that's something I might be able to do. Just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Not say anything against the church or against God. And, um, and then just accept what comes, you know. Um, it, it can be done. Um, and uh, maybe that's what we'll be called to do. I don't know. Uh, last of all, again, the other call. So this is another reason to praise God because what a beautiful thing that lives are completely revolutionized by their encounter with Jesus Christ. People have these, uh, so I, that's another thing about Miguel Pro is that he was a pretty serious young guy. He, I don't think he was ever not devout, but 
when the persecution started and he entered seminary, he really changed. Like his, his family um, gave witness to this, that he became much more serious, much more um, devout. And interestingly, this was when uh, the, his less serious side came out as well, which is really interesting. He's often thought of as a kind of a clown type or a, a holy fool, but apparently he wasn't like that until he became a Jesuit and until he had to go underground. And he found this, this very interesting uh, way of, uh, instead of being fearful, he sort of took things in a playful way and uh, uh, found this, this great courage in that playfulness. So you see how lives are changed by God when God gets a hold of them, and this is another reason to praise him. And of course, if it's the case that we were living a life of sin, Actually, I just, I hadn't thought of this before, but probably the best example for this in our current climate is Isaac Watts. Um, he's the composer of Amazing Grace. Uh, he was a ship owner and he ran the slave trade. And when he realized that this was opposed to God's will, that this was a, an evil thing to do, and he found God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ, this is when he said, you know, how amazing that God would save someone who is as wretched as I was, right? So this is another reason to praise God, that God even rescues sinners and changes their lives. And that sinner might be me. Uh, so we have all these motives, looking at our call, looking at how God has not only set the world up, but that continues to intervene and, and reach into the lives of individuals and change us. Uh, these are all motives for praising God. Um, now, what I'd like to do in the time we have left is um, if that sheet of paper I gave you on the back of the Te Deum, I copied out the Laud Psalms. I would just like to read through them with you because I just want to give you an idea of how you can learn to praise God. So this is another wonderful thing. You know, God speaks to us through the scriptures. We actually have the word of God written down um, in such a way that it can move our hearts. And uh, we just have to expose ourselves to it <laughs> and take it, take it to heart, right? Now, these three psalms are, are called traditionally the Laud Psalms. A few things about them that are interesting in the traditional Roman office and the Benedictine office, we pray them at the end of the office of lauds every day, at the end of the psalmody. And this is why they're called the laud psalms in this context. This tradition of praying these three psalms in morning prayer actually goes back to the Jewish synagogue. This was already being done probably at the time of Christ in the synagogues outside of the Holy Land, that these three psalms were being prayed each day. And so there's this felt need to, to praise God each day. The other thing about these is that uh, the last, I don't remember how many, I, I didn't look it up before we got here, but the last segment of Psalms in, in the Hebrew text, each one of them begins with hallelujah. And hallelujah literally means, hallelujah is the plural imperative of praise. And Yah is a shortened version of God's name. So hallelujah just means praise God. Every one of these psalms begins with that. Praise God. Stop. Start the psalm. And 
praise God, start the next song, right? So the whole of the psalm, the Psalter, moves from the the first psalm, which is a wisdom psalm about the good life of the of the person who follows God's law. So we kind of start where Job was at the beginning of his life. And we progress through lots of lamentations, lots of difficulties in the Psalms, lots of penitence, uh, lots of suffering and struggle. But then at the end, we move into praise. And the last Psalm, it's often said, this is pure praise. We don't have any motives for praising God other than he's God by the end of the Psalter. Does anyone happen to know, this is an erudite question, but do you happen to know the Hebrew name for this book? Psalter comes from Greek, right? The the Psalter is a a Greek instrument that you play. It's like a harp. But the the Hebrew name of the Psalter is, anyone? Tehillim. So that that word, if you take away the T at the beginning, Chalim is that same root of Hallelujah. So it's the, it's the nominative form. It means the praises. Im, as you might know in Hebrew, is the plural form. So techilim are the praises. So the whole book of Psalm is the praises of God, right? And it culminates in these three beautiful Psalms. So in Psalm 148, then we say, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. So from the heavens, you know, we begin by talking about the spiritual world. Those, those spirits that are in the heavens already, we are telling them, hey, you angels, you should praise God, <laughs> right? Uh, you stars, you saints, you all praise God, right? Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Um, so in, in the ancient mind, the stars were representatives of the angelic, armies right they were god's host then we start to come down a little bit praise him sun and moon right so the sun praises god in a sense just by shining brightly just by being beautiful by giving light life to plants don't we all love being in the sun i mean you know it just this was at the very beginning i remember i was talking to a friend of mine who was um, he was helping me edit some of these blog posts and he's a teacher, and after about a week of distance teaching, he said, yeah, this isn't working. <laughs> it's really depressing because they're getting to the end of the school year. He's teaching the, um, he teaches American history, and um, he's got this, this honor students class. There are all these very ambitious students. He's really excited about teaching them, and boom, it was sort of all over. And, um, but he said, you know what? Every day at, when I'm done teaching, I get on my bicycle and I get out in the fresh air and get some sunshine. <laughs> and what a difference that makes, right? So the sun, hey you sun, great as you are, you should praise God. The moon, moon's very beautiful. Moon helps us keep track of the months. Uh, moon gives us the tides and so on. Uh, moon, you should praise God too. All you stars up there, praise God. Highest heavens, waters above the heavens, all you clouds up there. So we are going through all of God's creation and reminding all of God's creatures to do exactly what they're supposed to do because it's really beautiful and it gives praise to God. It gives God glory. 
you know, there's that uh, Psalm 18 has that wonderful beginning of it. The heavens are telling forth the wonders of God, right? The glory of God. And the firmament shows forth the uh, work of his hands. Um, so there's something about just looking at what God has made and thanking him for it and reminding those creatures to praise him. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? Because he made them out of nothing just by speaking, right? What an amazing thing. Like, uh, one of the things I think would be great, uh, in the ancient world, the monks practiced uh, what we call natural contemplation, which is looking at the natures of things, why God made things the way they are, so that we see God speaking to us in everything, right? Um, now, one of the challenges, I think, is that in the ancient world, for reasons beyond their control, the world to them was basically enclosed by the solar system as far as Saturn. That's, that's sort of as far as things went. And then there were the stars out there in the firmament, um, but they could not have fathomed how big the universe is by our scientific knowledge today. Okay, now, so we have, a, we have kind of a job to do, and that is like to figure out why a God set things up that we were going to discover in um, the 17th century that the universe is a whole lot bigger than we thought. <laughs> all right, so God still created all of it, and it actually, if anything, makes him more amazing. Um, but we have a little bit of work to do because I think it's too easy to give in and think like, well, the old categories from the early church don't fit anymore. Uh, science has made things really complicated. It can't be more complicated than what God can solve, you know. So uh, let's just ask the quasars and the quarks and uh, the galaxies and uh, black holes to praise God, <laughs> right? Because they were made the same way everything else was when God spoke. He fixed them forever and gave a law which shall not pass away. So, so this is another thing about this natural contemplation. We often think, um, you know, what happened in the 18th century with the discovery, uh, Newton's discoveries, that there are these sort of immutable laws of motion and so on. Uh, there were actually churchmen, um, not, not Catholics so much, but, you know, William Paley, a famous one, who was um, Church of England, uh, who sort of thought of God as just sort of starting things up and leaving right winding up the watch and and then letting it run um what we're what what this is telling us is that the laws of nature the the creatures of of the world aren't under any obligation to follow them except that god renews them all the time they're 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 god's um they're god's laws he he gives them and he upholds them the the story of the flood is the proof of this so when man sinned at the beginning of creation, God sort of let everything fall apart, right? He, he undid the laws and let human beings suffer the consequences. But because of Noah, he made a, a covenant with Noah and said, I won't do that again. I won't let everything fall apart. So the laws of nature are there because God is faithful to his promises, not because they're independent of God, because God upholds them all the time. So God gave this law and it won't pass away because he's promised that it won't. Praise the Lord from the earth. Now we finally get down to earth. Sea creatures and all oceans. You, know, you could spend all day 
going through all the creatures in the ocean and asking them to praise God because there are zillions of them and we don't see them. And again, it's, there are lots of unexplored places at the bottom of the ocean. It's really hard to get there and it's really hard to see anything once you're there. <laughs> so it's amazing that human beings have been able to fathom the depths of the ocean and see these incredible creatures. And there they are. They were there all the time. Uh, they were going about there. They had their own little fish world. And God knew about it. He was there maintaining their world, feeding them. Um, they should go on praising God with their weird sort of lights on the top of their heads that they have, you know. Uh, sea creatures, whales, dolphins, eels. Uh, uh, what are the... What are those um, big uh, things? What's that? Rays. Rays. You know, all these really interesting sea creatures. You all, all of you, praise God. Oceans themselves, all that immense water. We should remember how big the world is. Um, again, without making any judgment on the science of global warming, I would just say I think a lot of our fear of that comes from the fact that we forget just how big the earth is. Um, the oceans still cover way more area than factories and cars do, okay? Now, again, I'm not saying we should therefore be uh, not responsible or anything like that, but we should think about how God has set things up and give God a little more credit uh, for being able to maintain things even when we're screwing them up. We should then, out of a, a sense of God's purposes, and not out of panic, we can make actually good choices about how to deal with environmental problems rather than like throwing policy at the problem. <laughs> like really thinking about, praying about it. Fire and hail. Fire, what a beautiful creation. You know, we, we have a, our, our wood stove is right there. and um, We've got all the wood stacked back there for fire for next year. Um, it's amazing what you can do with fire. Snow, isn't snow beautiful? At least when you don't have to get to work. Uh, mist, stormy winds, wind, amazing. It's amazing how it works. All these things obey God's word. You know, weather is really hard to predict. It's, it's too complicated for any modeling to do better than sort of guess, make a pretty good guess about the next day or two. Weather modeling is getting better and better and better. But ultimately, it's just too complicated to know in any given place on the earth what the weather is gonna be like except within certain bounds, right? This is chaos theory. Uh, in fact, we have chaos theory. What an amazing thing, how beautiful. Molecules, incredible how many there are. And that's uh, because of how these molecules run into each other that we have wind. We need wind, you know? We need air. Um, how beautiful that God gives it to us in such abundance. Mountains. You know, we, when we live in the city, we forget about all these beautiful things out there. Mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, wild and tame. You know, there are all kinds of wild animals out there that we don't see. Um, I had the great opportunity to go to South Africa about 12 years ago and uh, go to uh, Kroger National Park. Um, amazing, it's amazing, the animals, you know. And there they are. They just have their own world again. And God's there. He's in the middle of all of them. Reptiles, whole reptile kingdom, birds, lots of incredible 
different birds, all their different songs. It's amazing. All, all reasons to praise God. Now we finally get, we, you know, we haven't even touched on people yet. All earth's kings and peoples. Now here, do we think of like asking our political leaders to praise God, telling them they ought to? Uh, they might not listen to us, but even if they don't know God, if they do their jobs as rulers, then they're praising God in some inchoate way, okay? So we should always pray for those who govern us. That's really, really important, even if we don't like them. So again, I like to tell people, um, I've prayed for, since I've been in the monastery, I've prayed every single day for Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Doesn't matter who he is. I pray for him because he's the president. And uh, I don't have to like him. I don't have to agree with his policies. I do have to pray for him. I do have to urge him to do what God wants him to do. Or her, if we have a, a female president at some point. So all earth's kings and peoples, all the rulers, all the peoples, all the governors, uh, the mayors of cities, aldermen, praise God. Right? We should all do it. And uh, they, they might not remember to do it unless we are thinking about urging them to it in some way. Uh, young men and maidens, you know, this is a tough one. Get, get your teenage son to praise God. <laughs> uh, children is a little easier. Old men together with children. The human race, what an incredible variety of people, variety of ages, experiences, talents. Um, what would happen if, you know, we, we, instead of looking at all the problems, and there are problems, and we, we shouldn't look away from them necessarily, but if we don't balance the problems with looking at all of the beauty that there is to be found in the human race, we're going to make some mistakes, right? We have to tell the truth. The truth is that God loves everybody, right? Including the people that are causing us problems. So we should urge our enemies to praise God and we should love them. Uh, we shouldn't uh, victimize people, no matter who they are, even if they're powerful. And let all of these people, all these animals, praise the Lord. Why? Because of all the persons we know, God is greater. God is exalted. The splendor of his name reaches beyond all of creation, right? God is greater than anything we can imagine. I just was teaching Anselm's, St. Anselm's Proslogian. And Anselm's uh, argument for God's existence begins with, you know, God is that than which nothing greater can be thought, <laughs> right? No matter what you think of, God is greater than that. And if you, if you think you know something that's good in life, as St. Paul says in Romans, like, how much greater is the creator? Actually, he's borrowing this in the Book of Wisdom. So in all these things we're looking at, all these incredible creatures, the stars, galaxies, cats, dolphins, wind, fire. God is immeasurably greater than all. So this is why we praise him. Not only that God cares about us, he exalts the strength of his people. He is the praise of all his saints, of the sons of Israel. Spiritual Israel is the church of the people to whom he comes close. That's us, right? Uh, he's our praise and he gives us strength in praising him. Um, 
I won't, at, at the risk of being tedious, uh, I, I, uh, to avoid being tedious, I'm not going to go through the rest of these. I'm going to take a moment, and in the, we've got about 15 minutes before I need to stop. I just wanted to ask if you have any questions or observations you'd like to make about anything, anything I've said today. I mean, we haven't been together in a long time, so. Mike? Uh, in your experience, uh -huh. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, God can call us multiple times. Uh, I think of someone like St. Peter, whose life I, I meditate on a lot because I'm named after him. So he was called originally. And then there are two other calls of Peter in the gospel. The first one happens in Luke, I think it's chapter 6 where they have the miraculous catch of fish. And he says, depart from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. He's overwhelmed by this, you know, he's the fisherman. He should have been able to figure out where the fish were, but it was actually this carpenter who did it. And Jesus says, no, that's okay. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You know, come with me. He doesn't even refer to any of his sins, right? So there's a second call there. And then obviously after Peter denies him, the call is renewed. So I do think that... This goes on throughout our lives. And I, as I said, I think, you know, I would say in my own call, uh, there was an element, um, for whatever reason, God's grandeur has always been an important part of my own awareness of things. But I also was aware of my great sinfulness. And so, um, you know, on my old Facebook page, I had a little blurb that said, you know, my... Uh, I'm seeking my conversion and salvation in the monastery. <laughs> and I don't say that as just to be cute. It's, it's really, you know, I, I recognize how I can make big mistakes and cause harm. Uh, and so I need to discipline myself in the monastery if I'm going to respond properly to God's call. Part of his call to me was letting me see what sin can do, like how, how damaging is it, it is. So I want to avoid it. So, so, yeah, I, I do think there, there can be a progression. I think we can backtrack. You know, I think we can discover. Uh, I sometimes tell guys entering that the first crisis of monastic life is an encounter with our own sinfulness. So once we take away all of our, just the things that we use to distract ourselves, we can't talk to our families or friends. We can't go get a beer. Uh, we can't uh, just like go out to eat can't turn on the football game. And suddenly I'm stuck with myself and with a bunch of strange guys who I thought were pretty good, but then I realized they're, they're guys like anybody and they have weird foibles. And I start to get angry or frustrated. And I think, huh, when I was in the world, I wasn't like this. Now I'm here with these guys and I'm angry all the time. There's something wrong with this community. But actually what I'm encountering is myself, a, a layer of myself that I didn't want to look at before. Right. So I may have entered with very high motives to serve God in the monastery. And now I'm discovering that I'm a sinner like everybody else. And that's that's another call to, to admit the truth about myself. So so I think it can go in all kinds of directions. Matt. Um, I've also been drawn to the story of Leo. Yeah. I just read one. Um, it's, I think it's published by Ignatius Press, but I don't remember the author's name. Um, 
it's a good it's good and short uh but but it's very comprehensive i'll i, I can look up the uh the the author when i get when we're done here and let you know but yeah yeah it just came out a couple of years ago there is a good um, short biography of him in a book called 20th Century Martyrs by Robert Royal. And uh, that's a book that's worth reading just in general. That, that's what it's called, right? 20th, 20th, century. 20th Century Martyrs. And uh, it's about 12 chapters long and it goes through um, various persecutions of Christians that have taken place in the 20th century. And um, uh, that's that's where I became interested in Miguel Pro is reading that chapter in that book because it's really good. Sure. On the way here, I was anxious about coming here because I haven't dri driven here for quite a while. Mm -hmm. With recent events, I was wondering if it was safe even to drive to Chicago. And I yeah. I have yeah. a favorite uh, classical station I was listening to, and uh, the uh, DJ or moderator introduced a piece I'd never heard before called The Passion of St. Thomas More. Mm -hmm. by Griffith uh, Fisher, I believe. Hmm. And he's a saint that I, I, I really admire greatly, mm -hmm. given our political time. So I recommend that to, to any and all uh, to listen to. It was really a beautiful piece. Hmm. He used a lot of ancient Norwegian folk tunes uh, as kind of the basis of the piece. Mm -hmm. And it's done as an oratorio. And it's just yeah. something that was a call for me today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about Thomas More too, that uh, uh, he's another one who was silent. He, he was silent, right? His response to his predicament was not to say anything. And um, so this, this is, I, to me, this seems important because there's a lot of pressure right now to sort of demonstrate that one thinks a certain way or whatever. Um, and I, I think, uh, we want to be cautious about that kind of uh, pressure, and we want to we want to say what we can stand behind, and um, so that, that's all I guess. Other thoughts? Got about five minutes before we stop. I, I guess your comment on Joe. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, I guess we recently read him in the office. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was the first time I ever noticed what you said with that very little end. It's, you know, when the next thing is how Job gets all rebuilt. But there's this little line stand that Job got it. Somehow, you know, you really messed up these friends. Mm -hmm. You got to ride around there. And, yeah. and I will listen to his prayers for you. Yes, that's and right. Just, where did that come from? I've read it how many times. Job been on the mm -hmm. I've always found it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for you, for those of you over there, uh, one of the things that God says to Job at the end of the book is that his his friends have not spoken rightly, and Job has to pray for them. <laughs> right. So Job becomes an intercessor for others uh, in a in a different way than he was. It's not just his children anymore. It's it's sort of branches out from there and uh, he's been proven by God so he God actually gives him this job to intercede for others so well thank you so much for making the trip in it, it is safe in Bridgeport right now we, we did um, uh, 
right after Pentecost, so there was a lot of rioting and looting Pentecost Sunday. And uh, they did hit a couple of grocery stores in Bronzeville, or southwest of here. And the grocery stores in the area were closed for about three days. So that was a little weird. Uh, but everything's back to normal now. And uh, we're looking at uh, trying to uh, invite some Christian leaders from around the South Side just to come and address the community. Uh, just let us know what their challenges are and just find out ways we can pray for them and just make friends with, with people sort of at ground level because I think basically my experience is that uh, our neighbors want peace and quiet. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't mean not, not addressing injustice, but it, but it also means protecting ourselves against uh, danger. Right. And I think that's what most people want. So uh, we're going to try to do our part just by being friends with, with others. So let's pray together and ask Our Lady's intercession before uh, we end today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.